I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Eric Topol. Eric Topol is the director of the Scripps Translational Science Institute and co-founder and vice chairman of the West Wireless Health Institute in La Jolla. He's one of the top 10 most cited researchers in medicine, was one of GQ's 12 rock stars of science, and was recently named the most influential physician executive in the nation. Please give a warm welcome to Eric Topol. I guess I want to start off with the way I gauge an audience these days is to find out how many of you are active on Twitter. Okay, well, we got a few, few here. That, to me, is the uh, pulse of the information of the world I'm in, and I'm very uh, into it because I learn every day so much through that. In fact, many things that are I wrote about in the book and what I'll, we'll talk about this evening actually were first derived there uh, long before I might have seen it days or weeks or maybe never um, through other means. So it's a, it's a sign of the digital uh, times, of course. So what I want to get into is indeed the subtitle about this digital revolution, how it will create better health care, or at least it can. We'll, we'll get into uh, why it might not uh, towards the end of this. And I'm interested in your questions, not just at the end, but at any point. Uh, don't feel um, uh, at all shy by interrupting me. So uh, this title of the book, some people object, how can you use the word creative destruction? Uh, and you're talking about health. Well, creative destruction, uh, if you follow the Schumpeter, Joseph Schumpeter from the uh, Austrian uh, economists of the last century, uh, he actually uh, popularized the term creative destruction. And he, he wrote uh, just over 100 years ago about how you could go from an old economy to a new economy and how that would require radical innovation. That transformation could only occur to radical innovation. And that's essentially, uh, I'm trying to apply that term really for the first time in the medical sphere, that we have this opportunity to indeed go from an old medicine, which is wasteful and very imprecise and doesn't leverage the digital infrastructure to a new, precise, participatory uh, one that uh, will be far, far more efficient and far more preventive going forward. So that's really the background. And let me just, I guess, get into first of uh, the kind of digital infrastructure that we're talking about, because it's obviously a lot more than just social networking, although that's a significant part of it. The digital uh, infrastructure, uh, of course, goes back to even uh, the uh, cell phone back in 1973 and the personal computer a couple of years after that, the internet, uh, but really took off in the, last, in the first decade, that is the last decade, the zero zeros of this century. And one of the big parts of this were digital wireless devices. I'm looking around, I'm seeing nobody's on your devices. What's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I just give you a few more minutes, I know. Um, but you know, that really happened very quickly if you think back. So iPods were in 2002, and then uh, Blackberries, uh, then were called Crackberries, and now called Slackberries. Uh, they, they came uh, just a couple of years after. And then there was the uh, smartphone prototypic, uh, that was the iPhone, uh, and then uh, e-readers, uh, and of course right after that um, were tablets. And so these wireless devices have truly had a profound impact uh, on our lives. And in fact, I don't know if you saw the, um, 
the article in the New York Times by Sherry Turkle last Sunday. It was called The Flight from Conversation. It's really excellent. Sherry Turkle is a very close friend of mine because we both had the same publisher and worked with the same editor and had all kinds of similar experiences. And she's at the MIT lab. But um, one of my favorite quotes from that article is that these little devices that we carry around change from what we do to who, not only change what we do, but also who we are. And so that whole idea that these wireless devices uh, that, of course, rely on connectivity and broadband internet, but they have really been transformational in our daily lives. I think most of you would agree. There probably are some Luddites that don't use any of these devices here. But um, you must at least have a cell phone, and you must realize that there are more cell phones in the world, far more than there are toilets or toothbrushes. Okay? So uh, we live in a very uh, remarkable time. And if these digital devices can have such an impact on our lifestyle, why couldn't they also have an in impact on our medical care and our way that we approach medicine? Because nothing is more desperate in need of a fix than that. So then, uh, of course, this digital uh, world is far beyond just these wireless devices that we, we carry around and, and rely on for a prosthetic brain. In fact, our attention span is so limited today that we are typically not even looking at just one screen at a time, multiple screens. We have a, evolved to a new state of man uh, known as homo distractus. Um, and I still, I'm looking around saying, why aren't they looking at their devices? You, you can tweet, that's okay. So now, um, that gets to the next thing that really happened. Uh, of course, we're going to talk a little bit more about sequencing. That's a really big thing. That's also digital. We basically are all just... Uh, trillions of zero ones and ACTGs. That's digitizing human beings. And that's what we're capable of doing now. Not everything about a human being, but the essence of what makes us tick. That's what's so critical and that's what's so different, something we could never do before. The idea that you can digitize a book and a, and a newspaper and a, a, a video of a, of a movie, but that you could digitize a person. Now, you are being digitized already if you are uh, shopping in retail stores, uh, if you're on Facebook, your likes. They're, these are not deep uh, digitization of your being, but they're certainly your retail transactions, your consumer engagement. And you're, you're starting to get defined, at least by entities um, the, such as uh, major retailers, even the likes of Target. But certainly Facebook uh, is uh, particularly efficient at uh, gathering information about you. Every time you do a search on Google, this is leading to further definition of you in, in the digital world. Now, the social networking um, has had a big impact as far as empowering people. And not only are we well over 900 million uh, on Facebook, which is now uh, only second uh, to uh, China and India as the largest population of people, and soon to exceed both those countries as the largest uh, uh, community of people, if you uh, consider registrants on Facebook a community. Uh, but th this is empowering people uh, the likes of which we've never seen before, as you've seen through uh, not only the Arab Spring, but also uh, Occupy Wall Street. And this is bringing together people not just with uh, ideas, but now with the graphics of videos and uh, uh, emotions 
Uh, so this is something that truly is a power of the people we've never seen before. And that's important, as we'll get into, for how we get this uh, inflection to a new and precise medicine accomplished. The only other parts of the digital infrastructure I want to comment that are relevant are both uh, cloud computing, because we really couldn't do this without that uh, immense power of being able to take this big data and essentially money ball of medicine, which is extracting it and using it. And so we've needed this capacity of the cloud. This uh, uh, has been a, a, a liberation of a, a way to store and deal with data. And then the supercomputing uh, capabilities. So you may have seen recently that IBM Watson, which of course uh, uh, prevailed January uh, last year, uh, against uh, the Jeopardy champs, the human Jeopardy champs, but now IBM Watson, which can process two million pages of content in three seconds. Now, I don't know any physician that can do that. <laughs> now, why is that important? Well, now IBM Watson is working with the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. It's working with WellPoint. It's also working, as I understand, with Cedar sinai And that is to deal with uh, challenging issues. So, for example, reviewing all the genomic data of a patient who recently uh, had sequenced uh, uh, for their cancer, but also for challenging diagnoses to process all the current information, all of it, in a very short time to be able to uh, help unravel uh, a mystery in medicine. And why wouldn't someday all uh, patients, all physicians, have access to supercomputers, not just a select few, uh, as, uh, for example, one insurer, WellPoint, is using for very challenging cases. Now, these capabilities then of the digital um, structure that we are fortunate to live in has set up this uh, rarefied opportunity because what we have had uh, in medicine is all population-based. Everything we do in medicine is based on the population, all the evidence that we have. So when we do a clinical trial, that shows that Lipitor uh, has uh, the, the number one drug, prescription drug in history in terms of sale, that that drug um, has a heart attack incidence in the uh, treatment group of only 2%, whereas the placebo group was 3%. That is a 33% reduction, okay? 33% reduction of heart attacks, and it becomes the number one prescription drug in the world, at least until it went generic. That's the best evidence there is in these tens of thousands of patients of trials. We're talking about one in 100 patients deriving benefit, not about their LDL cholesterol, bad cholesterol going down in the laboratory, but rather are they getting protected from heart attacks. Let's say it's two or three per hundred, maybe even four. What about the other 96 that are taking a drug for the rest of their lives without the real evidence, which is based on an individual, not on a population. That same principle in medicine today, which is the best we have, evidence-based, oftentimes it's eminence-based, these guidelines that there's no evidence, but a bunch of people sit around the room when they come up with the guidelines. But the, the problem is that it's so imprecise. We have mass screening. All women should have a mammogram every year after age 40 when most women have zero risk of developing breast cancer for the rest of their lives. The same thing for all these procedures that we're doing. So this is what, uh, uh, in many ways, fosters the waste we have in healthcare. 
And uh, when you think about $300 billion a year in prescription drugs, and we know that at least $100 billion are unnecessary, that is unmatched for the, the right person, not having the, uh, the effect that we would like. Now, we can switch that population medicine to individualized medicine because we have new tools. New tools that we didn't have before. And these tools are, um, you know, first uh, that are uh, going to have a big impact are the wireless tools. Uh, these uh, basically adding on to this powerful mini computer that you have in your pocket or in your purse. And so uh, to give you an example of where this field rapidly grew, it first really started out with sensors in the health and fitness space, like the Nike Plus uh, shoe. I don't know how many of you have a shoe with a sensor in the sole of the shoe, like, like that, one or two. And then Fitbit and uh, Philips Direct Life and now the Nike Fuel Band and all these wireless accelerometers. How many of you have used these? A few more, okay. Well, they're great. I recommend them to patients because they, even though they're not that accurate, they don't detect when you're doing rigorous, like a, for example, an elliptical workout or other things like that, but they're pretty good for steps. And we want everybody to take 10,000 steps and most people don't even come close. And so when you start getting beeped or light flashing that you're not getting steps, it actually does promote people to be more active, and that's a good thing. And they're pretty inexpensive. All these wireless gadgets for the consumers run about $99 or less, so they're, they're affordable for many people. And they communicate to one's uh, smartphone. Then the next thing that came along was brainwave detection. How many of you have used, uh, for example, the Zio device, sleep device? About three or four people. Yeah, so that's been around for a couple of years, and it's actually also another $99 special that goes to your, your smartphone, and it is a headband that you wear that either goes to your phone or to a clock if you want on your nightstand, and it, every single minute of sleep, it says, says what phase of sleep you're in, whether it's uh, a wake, wakefulness or if it's a uh, deep sleep, which is the best, of, of course, REM sleep, that is rapid eye movement dream sleep, or light sleep, which isn't worth very much. And I started using this. I try all these sensors out to make sure they work before I ever recommend them. I started using this, and uh, the first thing I noted was my wife, who's a night owl, um, she comes in the room, and she looks at the clock, and she says, Eric, I know you're awake, and I want to talk. And so... Um, I just want you to know about these sensors. They often have things that you wouldn't even uh, expect. <laughs> now, then these sensors got even smarter because now they're in the health space. Now, a lot of you have high blood pressure because we've got 70 million Americans with high blood pressure. And um, I, I, as I learned today, if I had to drive around here a lot, I'd have even more high blood pressure. <laughs> um, so um, you can measure your blood pressure through your phone. You can get Eye Health or Withings device. Again, $99. I actually used to always recommend, uh, I'm a cardiologist and I, uh, I'm very active practice as well, but I used to recommend these Omron devices at Costco for all my hypertensive patients or suspect hypertension. But they're not fun. And I can't get many readings. And then they have to write them out and they have to send them to me by fax or email, type them out. Well, this is all captured in the phone and you just hit start. And you get, I now I get hundreds of readings, but what's even better, I don't have to look at all the readings because it's all processed and it's all graphic, real nice, and, and I get now a lot more data. But it still requires an active press the start button. 
uh, and you don't get during sleep or during an argument or stress. And that's going to happen soon because uh, sometime within next year, there'll be a wristband that gets blood pressure that goes directly to the phone. In fact, it's all the vital signs. But um, another one that I wanted to show you that I uh, th found was quite useful. So this is a, a case for my iPhone. And you see these two sensors on the back of it? And so um, if, you make a, if you put this on the phone and you make a circuit with your heart uh, by putting your fingers on the sensors, you get then uh, a cardiogram. And so I'll show you that. And uh, it's such a simple thing. I don't know how it wasn't invented all these years. Uh, I wish I had invented it. Um, so here's the screen. I'll put my fingers on there. And uh, in a second, it should be a cardiogram going across the screen. And I'm a little, I'm a little too, uh, moving a little too much. Anyway, um, why is this incredible? This is incredible because you can do all the cardiogram. You can take those, there's a, there's a credit card version. You want to try this out? Yeah, try it out. Let's see what you're, and then I can point it out while we're, while we're talking. Come on up. Yeah. It's incredibly uh, accurate. Yeah, yeah. So just put your fingers on and show the group what your cardiogram looks like. Just hold it steady for a sec. There you go. Huh? Yeah, an extra beat. Interesting. I, I, I hope you weren't nervous doing this, huh? Yeah. So your heart rate's a little fast. So you, you're stage fright, you think? Really? Yeah. But you've got normal pacemaker rhythm. Now, what's great about this, so let's say you were dizzy or lightheaded. There's this little button you'd press, and then you could send it to your doctor or your Facebook friends. Um, you know, whatever you like, you know. So it's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. Now, why? Thanks a lot. Now, why? Oh, by the way, this is the little credit card looking thing you can carry in your wallet. And then you can get all the leads. You know, you, you've had car, a cardiogram. You have to get all the different chest leads. Now, I didn't know this thing would be this useful. I knew I could give it to patients who were dizzy or lightheaded, and they could send me their cardiogram or even have it auto, automatically detected to get a text. But what I then found out was um, I, I happened to have this on a plane. And you may have heard this story. It happened after the book was published. But um, I, was, I was on a nonstop flight. It's supposed to be a nonstop flight. Um, and uh, I made an announcement uh, shortly after the, the plane, plane got to 30,000 feet saying, is there a doctor on the plane? And there was a person in the last row who was having uh, chest pressure and nausea. And so uh, I, there were three other doctors on the plane, but they all, actually all were surgeons. Um, <laughs> so they weren't too helpful. And I, uh, not, I hope there's not too many surgeons there. Um, for this matter. Um, so I uh, didn't realize that I could make a definitive diagnosis by going back to my bag and getting my phone. And so I had the fellow, uh, you know, do a, I did a cardiogram. And it was striking because I could get all the chest leads. And there, was, and there was no question whatsoever that there was this current of injury, classic uh, pathic pneumonic of a heart attack in the front wall of the heart, which then led to an emergency landing. And uh, the pilot wasn't too enthusiastic, but I said, look, we've got the diagnosis. Without that, we wouldn't, might not have known it was just a bad case of indigestion. Now, what was interesting about it is they were all ready to take him uh, where we landed and got him to a hospital to get his artery back open. But just after he got off the plane, the, the pilots and the flight attendants wanted to have their car cardiogram done. <laughs> so that was very educational. Um, now, 
this whole idea of wireless devices, I, I hope I'd be able to transmit to you the excitement here. It's not just about vital signs and brain waves, but it's also about these add-ons like this case. You can have an add-on now for $2 that will refract your eyes and send a text to get your glasses made. So if you're an optometrist, watch out. If you, if you have a skin lesion and you don't want to go to the dermatologist, you want to know what it is, you just take a picture, you get a very elegant report. You may, you may have to get a biopsy, but most times you don't have to. And it's accurate. Watch out if you're a dermatologist. So this is having a big impact already. And just think, these powerful computers in your pocket have enormous capabilities. I'm just scratching the surface. I, I don't have time uh, to go into all the different ways that this can be harnessed. And uh, beyond that is for remote monitoring. Why would a person have to go in the hospital unless they're in the intensive care unit, if, unless they're going to have an operation or procedure? All that could be done at home. As I wrote in the book, George Orwell wrote that the hospital is the antechamber to the tomb. Okay? <laughs> Do you know how many people die each year in the hospital for hospital-induced infections and mistakes and problems? It's profound. And that's with all electronic records and everything that's been tried. Nothing has worked. The best thing is stay home with wireless monitoring. It's cheap <laughs> and safe. Okay, so um, the, the other areas I want to talk about are genomics, uh, because that's actually where I spend most of my time, and that's where my real passion lies. This wireless thing kind of came uh, so suddenly, and it's more imminent to have an impact. But sequencing, uh, this year, a whole genome sequence, six billion letters, will be accomplished in 15 minutes. 15 minutes. And that's not just one sequence, that's doing it 40 times to make sure it's accurate. And that's 15 minutes for less than $1,000. And there will be 4 million people sequenced by the end of 2014, which isn't far away. And only a limited number of people have been sequenced to date. Now, why is this important? Well, the first place it's had its impact has been in people uh, with unknown diseases. The medical term for that is idiopathic. And I don't know why we just don't say, we don't know. We've got to have a fancy, <laughs> fancy medical term, you know, idiopathic. Well... Are you familiar with the Nicholas Volker case? This was a young boy who almost died in Milwaukee, the Medical College of Wisconsin, the Children's Hospital there. And he had a dreadful condition, uh, had 100 operations, was in a hyperbaric chamber. And finally, the pediatrician said, maybe we should sequence him. We, we're at our, the last uh, point here. There's nothing to lose. And they did. They found the causative mutation that led to the proper treatment, and now he's a healthy six-year-old, perfectly healthy and cured. And we also, in San Diego, had a family, the Beery family, where twins had a terrible movement disorder, dystonia. They really were uh, almost afunctional. And one, the daughter was in a wheelchair of these twins. And now they got sequenced. This precise mutation was defined. The therapy was also defined, that is the appropriate matching through sequencing. And they're thriving. And there's many other examples of this. So that's one area where sequencing's already had its mark, made its mark. The second is in cancer. Now we can sequence the tumor and the native germline DNA, compare that, and find out what went off the track. Because cancer is a genomic disease, by definition. If you can find the driver mutation or pathway, then you can have a drug that precisely matches to that. And I don't know if you've been keeping up with the expense of drugs for cancer. 
they typically could be fifty, a hundred thousand dollars for a treatment. Now, if you match it up properly, you can use that so much more efficiently, and moreover, you can actually have a great outcome for the individual. And the other area, of course, is this drug matching in general. That is to match the genomics of each individual. We're all unique. Even identical twins differ. Their epigenomics, that is, the side chains of their DNA, are markedly different. There is not one truly identical human being, uh, another of match, in the world. And so we don't account for that in Medicine Day, but now we have the tools, particularly for biology, the sequencing, and other things like proteins and metabolites and these epigenomic side chains of the DNA to be able to define each individual in a way we could never do before. And each drug we give to each person, we could preempt serious side effects of commonly used drugs. We can even develop new drugs and new diagnostics with the information by one sequence. Now, one project we've been working on that's very exciting is combining genomics and uh, the, the, uh, the whole um, wireless device. So heart attacks. I don't know how much you know about heart attacks uh, in terms of what creates them. But a heart attack, you have to have a blood clot in order for that to happen. And that blood clot happens, but what's going on in the background, in the artery, that takes at least a week or two for a crack in the artery to occur. So do you remember Tim Russert, June 2008, he died suddenly in Washington, D.C. at the NBC studio? He was my favorite journalist uh, on television. Um, and what happened, this tragedy, is, somewhat, is so uh, emblematic of what happens to people who have a heart attack. He had a stress test just a few weeks before that was perfectly normal. A stress test only tells us if there's a tight narrowing. It doesn't tell us if there's a crack that's going to start. That can happen anywhere, and it typically occurs where there's only minor cholesterol buildup. So a stress test is unhelpful. An angiogram is unhelpful. But now, we recently published our work at Scripps where we could pick up the cells that were being shed from the cracking artery that's in progress before the blood clot. Pick up those cells. Now, we've now sequenced the cells and studied the genomics of these cells, and we've developed a signature which could be used as a blood test to see whether there's a crack developing, but what we want it ultimately to be used for is to have a nanosensor, a chip, put into the bloodstream smaller than a, a grain of sand size, and that chip will pick up the DNA signature of cells that are sloughing off the artery, and it will talk to your smartphone, and it will give you a ringtone of heart attack. Okay? Now, I know you think this is science fiction and crazy, but in fact, it's eminently doable. And we're working, actually, with engineers at Caltech to, to actually actualize this opportunity. The same thing can be done for cancer, uh, for the first cell that ever shows up in the bloodstream of cancer, that would be the earliest detection that one could ever uh, um, imagine. And other ways, like for example, autoimmune diseases like diabetes, type 1 diabetes, which takes five years for it to occur. Uh, so it's a really exciting time to combine genomics and, um, and uh, the whole idea of wireless. And one other tool that we didn't have before was imaging. So I'm a cardiologist and I uh, have not used a stethoscope to listen to the heart of a patient for over two years. And you say, oh my gosh, how could that be? 
And I was really keen on this. I used to do a lot of bedside teaching of the stethoscope to residents and medical students. I thought it was great. Why would I ever use it again? It's useless. It's totally obsolete. All you get is lub-dub. But I can now use an ultrasound, pocket ultrasound, put it right on the chest, and within seconds, I see every aspect of the heart, how strong the heart muscle. If I could show a video, I'd show it, but I can't. Uh, <laughs> Uh, show you know uh, how strong the heart muscle if it's thick and not only that but it's an intimate experience because a patient if you've had an ultrasound whether it's your heart or your abdomen you don't ever see it you're, the sonographer is not allowed to talk to you they'd have their head cut off if they told you what they saw and not only that you you can't even get the report you have to call oh what did it show you know you may never even find out here I'm actually talking and showing it to the patient. And we're going through, is the heart muscle strong? Is it thick? Is the valve thickened? Is it, you know, the mobility? Everything all in a minute. As quick as it takes to listen to the heart. So it's a really exciting time. So the last thing I want to just mention is about why, how can we get this revolution in high gear? That's why I wrote the book. The reason I wrote a book, the first time I ever wrote a book for the public, because I gave up on my colleagues. They're incapable. <laughs> totally incapable of making a change. The medical profession, I know there's some doctors here, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, they're ossified, ossified. No change, resistant to change. You know, speaking of the stethoscope, do you know it was invented in 1816? And doctors took 20 years before they accepted using it. And that was just a stethoscope. Now, that is not a profession ready for change. And it's the same now as it was 200 years ago. Okay. So we need consumers to activate. And now the power of social networks, the power of things like patients like me, where you can go and talk to a virtual peer with the same condition who you trust more than your doctor. With unlimited time, even though the average office visit is less than 10 minutes, you can talk to someone with the same condition who you trust more as long as you'd like, or many people, in fact. But the social networking, the problem we have today is the medical priesthood. We have the paternalism. And it's really uh, exemplified by a conversation I had with the head of the AMA last week. Because I, I don't know, you probably didn't see it, but there was a Wall Street Journal interview uh, about the book and this whole idea of creative destruction of medicine. And in it I said, I am very upset that the AMA is lobbying against, for the government for the public, each individual, not to have direct access to their DNA data. I think that's an individual's right. Now the AMA says no, only if it's mediated through a doctor. Now I think that's terribly self-serving. You, you can get your DNA and if you want to have your doctor involved in the conversation, that's great, but why shouldn't you, especially if the AMA did a survey of 10,000 doctors and they found that 90% are uh, not uh, uh, comfortable in any way of using genomics. And now the, it lobbied the government. Okay, so um, we, that the conversation didn't go too well, um, as you can imagine. Now, the other things, of course, is getting access to your office notes. Doctors are against that. Because the, if they write SOB, you might think they're saying something bad about you, and it means shortness of breath, you know. Um, and, uh, and then there's lab tests. There was an article in JAMA, one of the leading journals, that said, should patients have access to their laboratory tests? That was just a few months ago. 
And how about that 62% of physicians refuse to communicate with their patients via email? What is wrong with this picture? And now we have this great opportunity. So this is not going to happen unless we get you, the interested uh, and capable consumers, to get rolling. So that's really the story. That's really a lot more granular in the book. This is a very superficial um, you know, uh, uh, sense of what it's about. And let me just leave you with, I think we have a rarefied um, opportunity going forward. I would call it a Kairos, supreme moment in medicine. We just have to make it happen. So thanks for your attention. What I heard you say at the beginning was uh, that people's individual genome, you could target them for, for them to be the four who would be respond, uh, responsive to Lipitor and not the 96. So what I was thinking is with that kind of reimbursement for a company's research and development, we, we know that it takes millions of dollars to bring a drug to market and so many of them don't get to market. Right. How could we encourage the uh, discovery of new drugs if you'll only have a very narrow market? Well, that's what you want, really narrow yeah, market. I, I don't disagree with yeah. you, but, but well, if we, there's no yeah. incentive. Well, unfortunately, the incentive, like a, re a recent example is the cystic fibrosis drug, which is you know, remarkable, but it's only effective, it's highly effective in 4% of people with cystic fibrosis who carry a mutation. And it's, the, only, the problem is they're, gonna, they're charging uh, $294,000 a year. Right, so that is a serious problem. And so the narrow use, highly efficacious, that's where we're going, but we have to get this pricing fixed because that's not acceptable. But of course, there are many more common conditions where let's say you had the right drug for 2% of diabetics, and we're talking about 30 million people by a genomically guided. That is an enormous market still. And so that's really where big pharma and biotech can move to, is small parts that are highly uh, precise of big common diseases I, at, at prices that are you know, reasonable, not gouging. Who are espousing ideas that potentially threaten the bottom line of big pharma and the AMA, what have you? Do you fear uh, the backlash? I, I lived through the whole Viox uh, era, and uh, you know I, I don't I'm not worried about challenging things. That's kind of my middle name, you know. I'm into that if, if it's the right thing to do. I think it's the right thing to do, but uh, it's not just you know for the sake of the challenge. It's a, it's that we have to have a big shakeup here. But you couldn't ask for it if there wasn't the, the potential solutions in sight, right? I mean that's the key. But I think what's really been if you look at the book. Uh, a couple of the leading uh, people in pharma have written uh, very supportive praise. So they get it. Some of them do. They see that this is the, to, a way to go forward rather than the old model of blockbusters that put in the water supply. Uh, you know, one-fourth of all people in the United States over age 45 take a statin. Most of that are, is unnecessary, most of it. And that's the kind of pharma model we live to until now, but that industry is really having trouble. So I think there, there'll be a receptivity. Does the Affordable Care Act recognize these revolutions that are coming forward in digital medicine, and will the Supreme Court decision set us back if it comes back negative? That's kind of like the digital world and the medical world. They're in separate orbits, okay? At least still to now, to this point. But uh, your point is the Affordable Care Act 
and all the healthcare reform and access and mandate and all that stuff, that has nothing to do. It does, it's, it, this is a whole different, this is about innovation, transformation, you know, individualization, democratization. Totally different sets of concepts. I don't believe that whatever happens uh, in June, uh, when the Supreme Court makes an announcement, will have anything to do with putting the brakes on or accelerating this other thing that we're talking about tonight. And I think it's, it, it, uh, it's important that we move forward with this, irrespective of what happens with uh, our problems with access and insurance. As incredible as it is what you have been talking about, you're forgetting a very important part of this, and is that we know very little of what the genome really means. And so you really need to inform the normal people that uh, it is not as, as, as you mentioned it, you know, it's not like today we could run a genome for $1,000 and then tell someone exactly when, how, what type of disease is, what is going to be so that people could be proactive and prevent those. Right. Well, we know very little about what it means. And what I tell my patients when they ask me is, is like I knew all the Chinese alphabet letters. Yeah. I know that we can find each one of them, the six billion units, but we don't know what it means. We don't know right. how to read the language. Well, so it's not as, as close as, as being usable as you, as you talk would imply. Um, I didn't imply that it was gonna predict anyone's illnesses. I didn't use that. I, what I said was it was useful right now in three areas, right? It was useful for uh, unknown diseases, idiopathic. We have many examples of that. We have an active program with that. And all around the country now they're cropping up. As someone with a serious disabling condition, you could find out what is the root cause mutation. When you have the parents and the individual or siblings, that's a very important application. I also mentioned for cancer, where it can provide uh, guidance of driver mutations. And I think that's an incredibly important direction. And the third thing I mentioned was on pharmacogenomics, which isn't being used today. So for example, we and every person who gets Plavix, an important medicine, there's a genotype that can be done that will tell whether the person's gonna respond. A third of people do not respond. If you don't respond, the chances of you clotting a stent are at least three-fold, and clotting a stent means either death or heart attack. There's side effects like Stevens-Johnson syndrome for Tegretol, a very commonly used drug, which we could preempt with a genotype. We know a lot about genomics. I'm not talking about whole genome sequencing. We know a lot about uh, from the, the uh, genotypic pharmacogenomic interactions. But I also want to say, I mentioned that uh, in 2014, when we have four million people with whole genome sequences, we're going to have a lot more information. So I acknowledge that. Our whole genome sequence frame of reference is very much underdeveloped. And I couldn't agree with you more. And I don't know if at any point we'll be able to predict at all one's illnesses, because it's much more than genetics. There's environment and lots of other factors that, that come into play. So I'm only specifically referring to a few areas today where we're not using that information. And I actually do believe it's, it's the, uh, it exists, but it's not uh, being harnessed. Aside from the new healthcare regulations, what do you think about the FDA and its attempts to regulate mobile devices? And as far as, are you more on the patient side as, um, as far as protecting uh, patient health data, or are you on the FDA side as far as uh, you could probably guess more which side I'm on. <laughs> <Hyper> <laughs> yeah. There is an issue of privacy. It comes up with genetics. It comes up with all. Anytime you digitize a person's vital data, it comes up. 
And the FDA is worried about hacking and breach and all that, but they're also worried about accuracy. So if you have, by the way, I didn't mention, but you could have your glucose going directly to your phone every minute with a sensor. And they're worried it's as accurate as if it goes to a separate dedicated receiver. This has been complicated because now we have two governmental agencies, the FCC, which is overseeing wireless, and the FDA with devices, you know, and they're both trying to muscle each other who's going to have the final authority. So it's complicated. I've been trying to, uh, you know, basically lobby the FDA to be much more supportive of innovation because I think you know, individuals will benefit. But we'll see. It's, it's, um, it's being held up. It's, it's not a sign of uh, great uh, velocity of approvals at this point. You're talking about the Democrat... Democratized um, healthcare and the healthcare industry. Have you considered approaching other shareholder share um, individuals that share that, for example, uh, labor unions or actually the public that's consuming this healthcare? Uh, I'd love to get everybody involved. I mean, uh, how, how, I mean, do you have a forum? I mean, how, I mean, you're out there, you know, in scripts and you write books, but I only wrote one. (laughs) This is my hardest I've ever worked in anything in my life. Are you, I mean, I know you talked to the AMA, but there are other professions that have a great investment and other shareholders, you know, share people that maybe I could sign you on to help me. Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) Now, if you have any ideas, I thought, you know, getting this started, didn't the conversation started through a book? And then if you have ideas and everyone else to how do we get uh, a much bigger uh, movement going forward, that'd be fantastic. I'm all for it. And I'd like to know, how can we follow the status of your projects and kind of what, what you're doing on an ongoing basis? Twitter. Twitter? Is that, is that the only... Eric Topol. <laughs> no, I, I, that's, how, that's what I do. Yeah. I, in order for me to keep up with wireless devices, genomics, imaging, I, I follow the people who share that information. I find it an incredibly useful uh, tool for um, that type of uh, you know, crowd sharing and you know, wisdom of, I, you can try to go to all the websites that have this kind of information, and I can give you the list of at least 50 of them, but I don't have time to do that, to read all the articles. The projects you're working on specifically. Oh, yeah, well you, you can go to our website, it's uh, the Scripps Translational Science Institute, stsiweb. Dot org, and we put all our stuff on there, like the heart attack yep. project. And, yes, I'm sorry, I missed that That's part. That's okay. But yeah, we, we uh, always update that. Okay, wonderful. Sure, Thank sure. Uh, doctor, there's going to be all these consumer sensors and uh, massive amounts of data. Are consumers going to be able to take advantage of algorithmic feedback uh, independent of health professionals? So I met Neil just before, and he's working on a solution on this, which is great. Uh, but, so it's a question that's kind of loaded. Um, but the, an- the answer is we can't do, we can't, uh, do this without algorithms, without processing that data and filtering it to make it practical, not just for the individual, but for the physician who's got hundreds if not thousands of individuals with various types of sensors. So this is a critical thing, is, t- uh, is getting the distillate, the juice of that data, you know, and, and making that uh, very attractive, and integrating the information from different sensors. So I know that's what you're up to, and I applaud that effort. It's really important. Uh, there was a recent um, paper in Science that was talking about uh, biopharma uh, companies moving more toward rare diseases, and yes. neglected, I mean, rare diseases, because right. about 60% of them are now focusing, have made it their niche market. And the question is more about um, 
regarding the neglected diseases, the tropical diseases, do you worry that this new technology might shift attention from those type of diseases that are already neglected? Well, I am a little worried about that, frankly. I'm glad you brought that up. And uh, it is a point. Uh, it's quite... What it is that they've learned is that... Uh, companies have learned that you can get a more rapid approval of a new drug through rare diseases, and then you can charge whatever you want. I mean, in the, the case of the Cali... Uh, Kaleidico is a pill for $300,000 a year for the rest of the person's life. And that's what a typical rare disease drug uh, would be in a 100,000 to 300,000 ballpark. And I think it's just you know, horrible. Um, so the question is, can this be done? Well, first of all, sometimes when you work on rare diseases, it applies much more widely, and you don't know that until you crack the case and, and find the drug that works. But secondly, can we do this uh, in a way which will indeed uh, not put these patients who would benefit basically at a state where they are unable to afford the, the, something that provides dramatic uh, potential. So there's a lot of issues here. And your, your, your point of this being a shift for a lot of pharma interested is because of the rapidity of getting a new drug approved and the revenue stream that it may provide. So it's a, it is an issue. My name is Louis de Avila. I'm a healthcare IT consultant. And um, Dr. Topol, uh, Mark Smith of the California Healthcare Foundation agrees with you that incumbents are resistant to change. And he was blunt in saying that um, they're resistant because it affects their bottom line. Uh, it's a financial reason. Um, and I talked to a doctor recently and asked her, you know, would you adopt some of these um, devices and things? And she said she's not going to pay for them. And I asked her, will patients pay for them? She said, I don't think patients will pay for them either. So I'm wondering if incumbents uh, and hospitals and patients and doctors won't pay for all this new technology. Who do you think will? You really touched on a, kind of a raw nerve here, which is the, the big R, the R word, reimbursement. And uh, that goes back to the earlier question about accountable care, which is part of the uh, Affordable Care Act. And if that were to ever, that will take so many years to try to change the reimbursement structure. But what's really interesting is a lot of things we talked about outside of the United States are catching on like wildfire, like that portable ultrasound high resolution unit, like um, um, genomics uh, in other countries for pharmaco pharmacologic interactions, and especially wireless devices. But because they threaten reimbursement here, and uh, the, this, is, this is an issue. And that's why I wish we could fix that. And um, that's what, there's a couple of big things out there, like the digital divide, and, which is a, a big issue, and reimbursement that are major obstacles for us to go forward. And hopefully we'll come up with solutions. But if, if we have the, the mass uh, public supporting these, this overall direction, I think we can override these. Thanks a lot for coming tonight. <laughs>